F1 in Pubs, the podcast that gets everyone talking on it as well as about it. Hello and welcome to a special F1 in Pubscast uh, in the middle of January. Would you believe it? Yes, we have lots going on. Uh, hopefully next week we'll be visiting the Autosport show. So uh, stay tuned and keep an ear out for a special podcast from there. But at the minute, uh, we are lucky enough to be joined by Adam Parr, who was the, until recently, uh, until March, he was the head and the CEO of Williams Formula One team. He's joining us to talk about a book which he's released recently, and not just any book. It definitely grabs your eyes as it sits on the shelves because it's a, a graphic novel rather than the standard uh, Formula One book full of text. Adam's here to talk about uh, his time in Formula One and the, uh, the book itself, which is called The Art of War, Five Years in Formula One. So it's definitely worth a uh, purchase if you can. And uh, Adam will be explaining exactly how to do that at the end of this podcast. But for now, Adam, thank you for joining us today. What made you think of going the graphic novel route? Well, um, I wasn't really intending to. I was trying to write a different book altogether, and, but it was a book that was going to have in it some stories from, from my time in Formula One um, to illustrate some, some, some ideas I had. And, uh, and what I found as I went through was that actually the F1 story was quite uh, long, <laughs> in a way, in, in its own right, but also a kind of fairly complete narrative because there's a sort of beginning <laughs> that goes on for five years and then it stops. <laughs> uh, so it's quite a nice story, or it seemed to be quite a nice story. I wanted to do, the book I was working on was going to be illustrated in this way. Um, so, so that's how it happened. Um, but actually, the more I got into it, the more I found that it worked, I think it worked really well putting the imagery and, and, and the text together. I just wondered if you were a fan of Michel Valiant or anything like that with the, uh, the famous French well, comic book series. Yes, well, you know what? I, I didn't know about uh, Michel Valiant until quite recently, but I was in the local um, little bar um, in, mm. in, in the village of France where I'm spending a lot of time with them. And oh. uh, the, guys there, the guy there actually used to work in Rally. And was, oh, yeah. he's a big fan of Michel Vaughan. He just lent me the uh, the movie that they made. Um, so I'm actually looking for, that was just before Christmas. So I'm looking forward to watching that. Um, but the only the only <laughs> background I have in that sort of stuff is that I lived in Japan for a while. So obviously I'm quite familiar with the sort of manga yeah. type materials and Akira and things like that. The artist who worked on this book, uh, Paul Tinker, is very keen on Frank Miller. Um, mm. who wrote Sin City and, and the, some of the really epic uh, Batman books, you know, the, the Dark Knight Returns, which all the recent yeah. films are based on. And uh, so I think, you know, he, was, he, was, he had in mind definitely a, a slight Frank, Frank Miller style, although not quite as violent as that can be. <laughs> and uh, Formula One movies and indeed comic book movies are sort of in vogue at the moment. So if there's any chance you get this made into a movie, maybe you'd be more excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I need someone really cool to, to play my part, don't I? Because uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, actually, fun enough, the, mo- the, 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 the book, um, and which was then made into a movie, which in a way is a little bit in common, is, is a book by a chap called Michael Lewis called Moneyball, mm. which, which is an account of a, a baseball team in America, the Oakland A's, and how they used certain calculations to, to, to recruit the best hitters um now i'm not you know i think michael lewis is an absolutely incredible writer and i'm not in any way putting myself in his category but in terms of writing a book about a sport over a very specific period of time from the perspective of in that case the the team manager in my case you know chief executive or whatever um 
there's a bit of a similarity there. I, I, I think that if you put all of this together, the genre, the, the, the comic book format, mm. the, the perspective of someone running a Formula One team over a specific time, and the fact that it's actually quite immediate. I mean, it, I only left, you know, less than 12 months ago. That's all, all together, I think it's quite unusual. Just thinking about some of the themes for the book, Adam. I mean, it's quite a, it's quite a distinct book in terms of, if even if you're not a Formula One fan, just the battles that you went through, as a, a CEO of Williams and almost bringing Williams back from the brink. I mean, there's there's two sides from the story in terms of uh, your role in bringing Williams back from the brink in terms of their financial situation, uh, but also the battles that you faced uh, with the with the Piranha Club or whatever they call it, um, and, uh, and and trying to, to make Formula One as fair as possible to, to smaller teams. I don't know if you want to explain a bit more about that in terms of the themes of the book. Yes, well, uh, I mean, you know, if you're, if you're like a normal human being and you come into Formula One, the, mm. the strange thing about it is it's not the things that you fight over that you'd expect to fight over. It's not... You know, who gets the best sponsors, who gets the best drivers, who gets the best technical people, who has the smartest strategies on, 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 on the race. None of that is abnormal or anything. You know, you'd expect all of that and you'd expect it to be absolutely vicious. Uh, and indeed it is. But what you don't expect is the fighting that goes on over stuff that really everybody has the same interests. Hmm. Um, and that is what I found very difficult to uh, deal with in a way, or at least I tried to deal with it. Um, but I think one of the reasons why maybe I didn't succeed and also why I made myself quite unpopular in the process is that for a lot of those people inside Formula One, they just take it as normal that you, know, you do deals that kind of screw, your, screw everyone else and yourself in the process. You know, they, they kind of regard it as being quite normal, whereas I'm used to world where if you can sit down with your competitors and actually sort things out in a really rational way that's good for everybody you give your right arm to it because normally in any other business you go to prison for trying to do that. Formula 1 you actually are allowed to but <laughs> And I was sensing that uh, you're feeling you're well out of it now. Do you think you've, have you got any unfinished business in the sport? Um... I don't know I'm well out of it. I miss it, and mm. I had a great time, and it was a very interesting, difficult time, but very, you know, very special and great privilege to do it. So I'm, I'm very sad in that respect. Um, but you know, I've really reached a point where I, I, I just didn't see any way forward. So mm. unless you know that that, I can't see that situation changing in the foreseeable mm. future. And therefore, I think. Whether I feel better out of it or not, I think I am probably better out of it. And there's, there's the issue where, even up to a, this time last year, before the things happened, where you thought you would be running that team for quite a long time, how did you go so quickly from being the next Sir Frank Williams to where you are now, sitting on the sidelines? I mean, is that a shock to you as much as anyone else? Um, you know something, when you, when you make the decisions, you can't really say that you're shocked. I think a, a number of other people were a little bit shocked at the time. Mm. To me, it just seemed inevitable because I felt at the time that the basis on which Williams and I would be there and therefore would, you know, I would be continuing in Formula 1 were just unacceptable. So, mm. so it just seemed kind of necessary and therefore I wasn't shocked by it. 
when it comes to sort of lead time and decisions, we all know uh, Formula One's not an instant world. You know, you make a decision and it, the ramifications of which could happen two or three years down the line. You've now had the must be terribly frustrating experience of sitting on the sidelines watching the TV broadcast, I imagine, if you could bring yourself to do that, and watching uh, Williams do you know, comparatively better than before. They won a race and they, you know, they got quite a lot of points comparative to last year. So how frustrating that was you? Was that you thinking those are my decisions and my, my, the things I've done is finally paying off? Yeah, I mean, I was absolutely thrilled. Um, mm-hmm. Because you're right. I mean, the, 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 the up to, you know, you can't claim credit forever. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, I mean, the, one of the nicest things for me was the fact that on the, on the afternoon after of the Spanish Grand Prix, Frank mm. interviewed, I don't know if it was Jake or if it was the Sky team, but they interviewed him and said, how did you do this? How did you turn things around? And he said, I didn't, Adam did. And, you know, that, that was really, I mean, that's typical of Frank, but it was mm. also very touching. And, you know, earlier that day, it was a Sunday, obviously, and I was in um, the Middle East. I was with Alex Burns, the chief executive of Williams, and mm. a chap called Damien Scott, who runs the Williams program in Qatar. Mm-hmm. We were in, in the Middle East together. We'd had meetings that morning. We came back to the hotel and saw what happened. I actually couldn't watch the race because I was so nervous, but I went, went to the gym and said, and when mm-hmm. I came back, um, we'd won. And, you know, and, I, and I felt it was we. I was with Williams people. Yeah. I felt the, you know, the driver and the technical team and the engine were all things that I'd put together in the previous 12 months. And so I, was, I felt very proud and de- absolutely delighted for the team. And in fact, if, one thing you, know, you should think about is that it, why, why if things have gone really badly? Hmm. You know, I, wouldn't, I can tell you I would have been given the blame. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the reality is if things had gone really badly in 2012, I am sure that people just said that that was Adam's doing and um, got rid of him, we can, <laughs> we can do better. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that would seem to be coming through in your in your book is the constant battle, uh, almost between mainly yourself and other members of Photo and and Bernie Eccleston. It just seemed that whatever Bernie says goes. And we had a question in from uh, one of our followers on Twitter, Andy Groves, Andy GF One, um, who said, "Our customer car is inevitable soon." And I think it it's almost it was almost comical from reading the book is that you go through phases of almost going through certain victories and then Bernie would always come back to it come back to this theme of you know we re- I think we need customer cars in F one um, do you think that that's inevitable in the sport? Interestingly, in the Concord agreements that have been put in place for twenty thirteen onwards, as reported, there it appears that there is a provision that a team can provide one of last year's cars to another team. That lays the foundations for customer cars. Um, now, there are certain problems with that. I mean, for example, you know, when, when the last chat I had with Bernie about that, I said, but Bernie, this was obviously in, this was actually in January 2012. He said, you know, Adam, what we need to do is we need, we need to be able to sell a car to another team, just one car from last year. And I said, Bernie, that's a great idea, but first problem with it is that last year's cars were actually faster than this year's cars. I mean, I, the 2011 car will be faster than this year. Yeah, but what they, okay. And then I said, well, what do you do in 2014, Bernie, when you've got these new engines? So does it, in 2014, do, we, do you have 1. whatever it is, 6 litre V6s with a fuel restriction mm. against 2.4 litre V8s without one? 
And he said, well, obviously. So, so, I mean, the point was, it just didn't make any sense. And quite apart from whether there was any benefit in doing it, it just you, you practically, how do you do it? So interestingly, I saw that Luca de Montezemolo was saying the, just the other day that he wants not customer cars, but he wants third cars, which, of course, is really what they want. Mm. You know, Ferrari, Red Bull, probably McLaren. Um, you know, they want to be able to put three cars on the grid. And that is absolutely the worst thing you can do for Formula 1. The worst thing you can do. I'm not sure which is, whether it's worse than customer cars. But, but, you know, I remember Ross saying in India in the end of 2011, he said, you know, we can't do this. Because what if, you know, Mercedes, with all the investment they're making, what if they have the fourth fastest car? That means in front of them are nine cars. Yeah. Right? And um, so he said, you know, we'll be lucky to be in the top ten. And one of our cars won't be in the top ten. So... Now, I'm not saying, I mean, that's just what he, the, the observation he was making. But, but actually, is it really what fans want to have the, the front two or three rows blocked out probably by two teams? I just think it's the only basis on which you could justify having three is if it falls down to, say, eight teams. And even then, I think you should do it with different rules. So, for example, if you had eight teams with three cars each, 24-car grid, that's great, then you say... The first two cars to qualify, the fastest two cars of each team qualify first, second, whatever they finish. But the third fastest of each team lines up, um, whatever it is, 17th down. So, so 17 to 24 is the third fastest cars. What does that do? That means that there's a hell of a competition between the drivers to qualify well. Mm. And it also means that you've got, you know, you've got the... the I, in theoretically, the third fastest car on the grid could be starting 17th. Um, but what you don't do is have a lockout at the front of the grid. Mm-hmm. So that's what you reckon the entire Concord agreement is about? The top teams want to win, run three cars and just sort of scoop up all the royalties and the, the money that comes with all the points from that? I'm not sure to what extent any team or group of teams or Bernie have got together to think about how they want you know things to pan out. But... You know, if I can use the analogy of the, of the Premier League, at the moment you've got a very even distribution of revenues in the Premier League and 99% or so go to the teams. Um, if someone came along, you know, Rupert Murdoch or, or someone came along and said to Man United, Chelsea, Man City, mm-hmm. join a European Super League, you don't need to share all this money with, with everyone else, um, then, you know, people get tempted. I think it's a combination of ego... Um, I'm not sure about greed because I, I, ironically the more money these teams get the less they actually seem to retain <laughs> uh, um, but, but you know it, it's tempting it's tempting to be, to be looking to join a, kind of a better and a better mm. group so I, I think the risk is there and I think that the responsibility of the regulator is to make sure that that doesn't happen I would say it's more about um, power and sort of proving it to your fellow competitors and saying I'm the most powerful person but it's about individual money I think it's about ego mm-hmm. I would have I was too scared to say that <laughs> yeah, there's a lot about it I mean Max Max Mosley in his introduction to the forward to my little book mm. talks about the ego I, I don't really talk about that because I don't I try not to I try to let the story tell itself mm-hmm. I don't want you know you can decide what motivates people but my observation would be that um, ego is very, very, vanity and ego are very, very powerful things. Mm. And 
you know, to some extent, we measure ourselves by the people we are, we mix with. Yeah. You know, the trophy wife, the car, the team. You know, and if you're, if you're Roman Abramovich and you've got the choice between playing every weekend with Real Madrid and Barcelona and, you know, Porto, whoever it is, mm. or slogging out in, in, in Swansea and Cardiff, I don't know. I, I, just something tells me that there might be a temptation to go and do that. Do you think do you, do you think that there's a, a a future for Formula One post Bernie? Do I think there's a future? Do you think there's a future in Formula One post Bernie? I mean, my my theory is is in terms of <clears throat> the relationship and the power hold that a few individuals seem to have over the sport. Do you think that there's? Do you think Formula One will survive as a sport post the Bernie era? It's very hard to see beyond Bernie, isn't it? But I think the the reality is that. CVC or whoever owns Formula One will put in place, they won't be able to replace Bernie with someone like Bernie because I, I'm, I don't know if anyone exists like that. Um, but I think, I think that they will look for some, you know, a, a professional executive who has you know, the ability to manage the business successfully. Um, and I think then, therefore, it depends very much on what kind of a person they select. And whether that that person tries to run things in the way that Bernie has, or whether they look to do things in a different way. But you do feel it needs to be one individual person, a ringleader, rather than say a committee. Well, I'm not aware of anything in the world that's run by a committee, <laughs> and certainly not successfully. Um, you know, I mean, it's not a very it's not a very complicated business. You know, it's not a very big business either, really. I mean. The revenues of about one and a half billion dollars a year. I mean, mm-hmm. business—the little business I worked in before I came to Formula One. I mean, I think you know, last year it made what eleven billion dollars profit. Mm-hmm. You know, there are bigger businesses around than Formula One. Um, it's, it's a very profitable business, um, but it's not that big. I mean, he's probably got a couple of hundred contracts. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know, with broadcasters, circuits. Sponsors of Formula One, like you know the UBSs and the DHLs, and then the teams. You know, it's not it's not a massively complicated business to run. Um, so, yeah, one person, one chief executive. I think hmm. it's interesting. Interesting that you mentioned uh, your life before F one, and uh, I think perhaps that reputation of of not coming from a racing. Um, background uh, sort of turned people against you initially but before you, did you feel you had you had to spend time winning over sort of the the people who died in the world racing uh racing people or did you feel that your uh, unique perspective uh, sort of was a, a benefit rather than a hindrance well i don't think anyone could accuse me of spending any time in formula one trying to win over friends <laughs> um no i just did what i had to do and you know i think i'd like to think that people could look back and say, well, you know what? Actually, he didn't do a bad job on, you know, in, in, in his own way. Um, and to see Williams winning a race again for the first time in 2000, since 2004, I think, you know, and a race like Barcelona in the dry, mm. which requires a really decent set of kit and a good driver. I mean, it's very hard to 
The great thing about Formula One is the results just tell the whole story. The sad thing for me was that while I was working for the team, we really didn't have those results. And therefore, mm. anything that I did, and to some extent, anything anyone else did in the team, was sort of always not good enough. Um, because obviously, we wanted to do better. But, but you know, I, I think the team's in a position now where it can really look forward with great um, optimism and enthusiasm. Mm. I mean, moving forward and your involvement uh, beyond Williams and your potential future involvement in Formula One, I noticed that you uh, you've tweeted and put on your Facebook page the idea about a uh, Formula One fans forum. I mean, one of the things that we do with F1 in pubs is trying to bring F1 fans together. And it's quite interesting seeing, you know, you see everybody who goes to Grand Prix, to, who's involved internally into the sport. But the reality of who makes up the, the viewing of this sport and who really makes it what it is is the ordinary fan who can't afford to go too much at all. I don't know if you want to explain any thoughts and behind the idea of a Formula One fan forum. Well, I just think that... I think that the fans need to, to get organised. I think that they are the most important stakeholder in the sport and they need to get, get organised and have a voice. Did you have any specific plans about that though? Did you speak, have you spoken to, to anyone that's quite open to the idea? Or? I think lots of fans are open to the idea, but no, I mean, obviously, you know, I think that, I think that someone like, Bernie, the FIA, the teams, probably the last thing they want is is to have to deal with a really organised group of fans. I mean, if you look at football, um, I mean, one of the, probably the toughest job, the toughest part of the job of being the manager or CEO of a football team or owner is the dealing with the fans. Mm. You know, to some extent, that is bloody good because they are held to account by a fairly organised group of people in some cases who can who can ultimately drive the owner out and certainly can get rid of managers, you know, by just endless booing, <laughs> um, you know, um, but, but I think there is, a, you know, there is a danger with that sort of democracy that they also uh, are too impatient, um, expect sometimes a degree of transparency that you just can't give people because you can't tell people all your plans all the time because, they're, you know, they're secret. Um, so, so I think my point is that, the fans should get organised, should have a voice, should be thoughtful about how they exercise that. And I think, interestingly, in Formula One, it wouldn't be a fan club for Williams or a fan club for Ferrari. It, it would be, it would be the people who support Formula One, which is, which is the majority of people. I think. Who do you think should they, lead that though? They should demand a, a bigger stake in what's going on. So is it, do you feel that, uh, it's probably not going to shock anyone with this opinion, but Formula One is too elitist and they're not going to do anything about it, so it's up to the fans to try and bring down the barricades themselves? I think Formula One's elitist. Um, I used to get rather offended by that because, actually, if you look at Formula One, you've got teams of, what, 500 people, pretty normal people, who work bloody. Hmm. There are in any team only a handful of people if, who earn, you know, crazy money if i mean m most people in a formula one team uh earn it may be the same as or a little bit more than they might earn doing something similar in uh, rolls royce or bmw or you know a normal engineering firm right mm. uh, the guys on the shop floor 
have a, a, you know i think they're I think personally well paid but they're not it's not you know bloody hell i'm going to retire on that after five years um and then you've got some a small number of drivers who earn a lot of money but if you compare any of those with footballers i mean look at football which is meant to be a non-elite sport i mean the money earned by the players is ridiculous you know we're talking about a sort of hundred grand a week and for, for pretty much anybody um you look at what if you look at what the top executives earn in that sport uh, it will be i tell you i would suggest you three or four times more than the equivalent in formula one so so i and of course it takes hundreds of people to make a formula one team successful so i think it's not an elitist sport what having said that it's a very expensive sport to run and it's therefore quite an expensive sport to watch and to you know whether live or, or on television so do you think that perhaps yourself might want to to lead this formula one fan forum revolution-esque uh, idea I don't, I don't think so. I think um, if so, if put it this way, if if a, a group of if a group of fans started up a you know something on the net where you got out and said, let's create a forum, let's create a constitution, let's get sign up, um, you know, and then and if they looked at me and said, look, could you can you give us any th- ideas or help? I would love to do that. You know, I'd love to help, but it's got to be a fan movement. I'm not a fan in the sense that, you know, your average reader or listener would be. I'm, I'm a former executive. I used to run one of the teams. Um, I'm, I do love the sport. I think it's, you know, and I want it to do well. But, but I, I think it would be wrong for me to do that. I think it should be a popular movement, grassroots, getting itself organized. I mean, you've got the internet, you've got social media, so you've got no excuse for not doing it. And quite frankly, if the fans can't get themselves together to do that, then, then why should anyone else help? I mean, Photo already have their fan forums at the moment. Um, but, I mean, it's interesting some of the stuff that we've been doing in terms of the reaction to just F1 in pubs, the idea of just bringing grassroots fans together is that they can actually be quite organised. Um, perhaps we should lead a revolution from, uh, from, from F1 in pubs. You may have to change the name to be a bit more accessible internationally. But you're right. Why not? Why not? Why not you? I mean, you've obviously got the interest, and you've taken the initiative to do to do F1 in pubs. But I, I you know, and you, and also, quite honestly, you have the credibility to do it. Whereas, I think it needs to be a really genuine grassroots movement. But using social media, you could create something incredible, and you could, you know, you could force your agenda. You can, you could force the, the teams. And I mean, you know, what? You know, just speaking randomly, what? If you got, let's say that in, 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 in the UK, 300,000 people go to Silverstone over the weekend, right? You know, you could, you could actually put together an organisation that could actually say, well, you know what, this is what we want on Friday. And, you know, if you don't want to do it, we'd have to come. Interesting. We can start the revolution. Well, thank you, Adam, for, for doing the interview. It's, it's been really interesting. I, uh, if you anyone that's listening, if you haven't got Adam's book, uh, Adam Parr, Five Years, uh, The Art of War, Five Years in Formula One, uh, it's all available in. Is it all, all available in good all good bookshops? I don't know which bookshop is it, it's in, but it's certainly available on Kindle and uh, uh, and on uh, iBooks, which uh, it looks fantastic in. So on my website, www. 
details of that. But if you, if you, there are two ways you can get it. You can either get a hardback English edition, which I think looks fantastic, or you can get it on the basically on an iPad using the Kindle app. So it's the Kindle app is free. You go onto Amazon, you buy the book, um, you put it on your iPad, and actually we designed it for the iPad. So it's designed for that A format, and and I think it looks fantastic on an iPad. So put it on that, and any what is it? Four pounds ninety or something. So, hopefully affordable. Yeah, and it certainly uh, will stand out aside from all the other books. So, uh, keep an eye out for it. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Adam. My, thanks, guys. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much to Adam Power there. Gave uh, some of his valuable time to talk to us, and that's very kind indeed. And hopefully, reward that by buying his book or at least downloading it on the iPad, as he said. Anyway. For those that are listening to this in the second week of January, we are also intending to head towards Autosport International for the Autosport Racing Car Show uh, next weekend. Um, if you'd like to meet up with us and Chris and and all these famous stars of F1 in Pubscast, oh, we're such a, a merry bunch, uh, or you're just intending to be at Autosport International and would like to talk to someone at some point, then we will be there. We might even be in a pub as well to live up to our stereotypes. So please do follow us at F1 in Pubs or at F1 in Pubscast. That's me. Please follow. Please do follow. And we will be announcing our presence and where we'll be over the course of the Autosport weekend. So hopefully we'll see you there. That will be our subject of our next podcast. So keep listening out and we'll definitely hear you then too. So we'll see and hear you for the Autosport show. Goodbye. If you'd like to join in the fun with the podcast or just find out where Formula One is being shown in your local area, log on to www.f1inpubs.co.uk or follow at F1inpubs on Twitter. (laughs) 